You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Thanks, Adam. All right. So as you just listened and saw, we have another uh, cryptic and mysterious prophetic passage here in the book of Daniel. And so we have our work cut out for us to dig into the text to try to understand what these images and what this, these predictions and these weeks and numbers, what do they all mean? So again, uh, as we go through these prophetic passages, Daniel, I tell you guys every time we do this, this is going to be a teaching-heavy sermon. And actually, our men's retreat this last weekend, the guys decided to do impersonations of me and roast me. And that was one of the things they kept saying is, oh, Joe, I'm Pastor Joey, and we're doing a teaching-heavy sermon today. Well, we are. So, okay, so uh, deal with it. So we have teaching-heavy. So my goal today is really just to walk through this passage and answer the question, what does this mean? Like, what does the, what's the message here? How do we interpret this? What does this mean? Then I'll conclude by giving just a few points of why it matters, why this is relevant to us. And here's why I'm actually really, really excited about this passage. I'm excited about this passage because two reasons. One, the Bible is a wonder. There is coherence, uh, no inconsistency, no cracks, no lies, and uh, God and how he reveals his purposes and reveals himself. He does it in such a genius, engaging way. I mean, the Bible is a wonder, and it's inviting you into it. And I want you to know, I hope what you see today as we walk through this passage, that passages like this that seem really intimidating, they don't have to be. You can figure it out. We can figure it out. In fact, the Bible itself is its own best commentary. It gives us the clues to interpret the riddles here. And so the Bible's a wonder. Here's what else I hope you see today. The hope that we have in Jesus and the hope that we have in belief and in certainty that God is sovereign, our hope is steadfast and sure. There is not a better hope that you will manufacture, that you will discover in this life. This is exceptional hope. As I hope today that you see that as we walk through this passage, that we, there's nothing that even comes close to this. So with that said, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into it and learn from God's Word. Father, we come before you today, and we ask that you would teach us. We are your students. We are disciples of you. And so, God, we want to come at your feet and listen to your words and be instructed by them, encouraged by them. And so, God, I pray that you would do that this morning through your spirit and your truth. God, I pray that you'd help me to preach this passage with clarity, that we might benefit all from it today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So, just to review, okay, just to review last week, Daniel You remember, he's reading his Bible, he's reading his Old Testament, he's reading Leviticus, he's reading Deuteronomy, he's reading Jeremiah, and he's beginning beginning to connect some dots, and he's realizing a few things. What he's realizing is that at Israel, who's in exile right now in Babylon, actually underneath Persia right now at this point, where we're at in Daniel Daniel chapter 9, he finds out that they will be in exile for 70 years. And at the end of those 70 years, there will be an exodus, or a, a, a new exodus. They will return to the land and God will restore them. And so what he reads is that that timeline has begun and it's about that time where they're going to return to the land. And what he also reads is that they're supposed to pray 
and seek the Lord with all their hearts so that they can return to the land. So that's exactly what Daniel does. He gets on his knees and, and intercedes for the people. Then Gabriel shows up and immediately arrives and tells Daniel this answer in 22 and 23. He made me understand speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So what we're about to read and study is the answer to Daniel's prayer. He's, he's praying for his people, asking God to deliver them. And so this is the answer to that prayer for deliverance. And what we're going to see is that this 70 year of exile that Israel is in right now in this pagan nation, Babylon and then Persia, is just a prototype, if you will, of future versions of exile, future versions of being a stranger in a foreign land for God's people. So I want you to think of it like this as we enter into this passage. When you were a kid, maybe you had a, a toy called a kaleidoscope. I don't know if you ever had a toy, a toy called the kaleidoscope. But what it is, is it's a tube that you look through an eye hole, and there's a color or a picture in it that is reflected off of little mirrors and little glass, and then it creates this multiple refractions, and it, it, it multiplies exponentially that one color or that one image. That's what this passage is, in a way. This 70-year exile that Israel is in right now is that eye hole that we're looking through, and what we're going to see is that it is multiplied. It is refractured throughout time. It's going to pop up and pop up and pop up again. This is like the prototype of future exiles that God's people will experience. So let's look at the answer to Daniel's prayer. Start with me in verse 24, chapter 9, verse 24. It says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So when will the exile lift? What's the answer to Daniel's pleas and his questions? Literally, the exile will lift in 77s. 77s. That's what 70 weeks literally means. The word week and the word seven share the same root word in Hebrew. So the answer is 77s. And since the whole context is about 70 years in exile, it's almost unanimous across the board from interpreters and commentators that what is meant here is 70, uh, 70 cycles, uh, uh, seven cycles of 70 years. 70 years times seven. So it's a play on words because as you will see, this passage uses measures of time to convey greater realities, which are the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel's prayers. So what is 77s? 70 times 7. It's 490. So we're talking about a 490-year period. Daniel's prayers will ultimately be answered in 490 years. So Daniel perceived that after 70 years, the exile would end, and now God tells him that the end of exile after 70 years is only a prototype of a greater exile to come after seven cycles of 70 years. So this means that Daniel's prayer for release from exile and the release itself is only part of the picture, a small part of the picture. The release from exile after 70 years is that eye hole in the kaleidoscope. It points to something much richer. 
much more complex, something beyond itself. It serves as a type for future liberations from exiles. So here's what we need to understand, that numbers, especially in prophetic and apocalyptic passages like this, are not meant to be taken exactly. They're not meant to be taken literally. They are symbols of a true reality, but in themselves are not meant to be taken literally. So you can see this just in last week's passage. Remember, Daniel understands that after 70 years, they'll be released back to their own land. But uh, no matter who you ask in different commentaries and interpreters, uh, no one can really figure out exactly how it is 70 years from the day exile begins, the day it ends, And so what does that tell us? That this isn't meant to be an exact number, literally 70 years. This is meant to be an approximate number, a general number that is used to convey greater realities. So this span of 70 sevens, or 490 years, what we're going to see is that it's broken up into three smaller eras, or three smaller measures of time. This 490-year span is broken up into, first, we're going to see, into a 49-year unit, which is described in verse 25 as seven weeks, or seven sevens, which makes up 49 years. And then the next installment, or the next sequence of years, is a 434-year unit, which is described as 62 weeks, or 62 sevens, which makes up 434 years. And here's what's interesting about 49, the first sequence, and then 434. What we're going to find out is that those numbers have reference. They refer back to really important and grand events in Israel's history. They're meant to symbolically bring to mind some grand salvation gestures of God. We're going to see that as we keep going. But this last unit, okay, this 490 years, broke up into 49 years first, 435 years second, and then lastly we'll see there's a seven-year period that brings it to its completion, that brings us to a total of 490 years. It's described as one week or one seven, and it's divided itself into two three-and-a-half-year periods. So altogether, the 49 years that we're going to see, the 434 years that we're going to see, and the seven years we're going to see make up this 490-year period that is the ultimate answer to Daniel's prayers for release from exile. So this 490-year period, it brings about the end of exile. I just said that. What does that mean exactly? What does that mean? Well, we looked in verse 24, and it says what? 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your city. So he, it's decreed, meaning it's fixed. This is what's going to happen. This is what God has set in place and authored. And what's, what's going to happen during this 490-year period? What's going to be brought about over the course of time? It says to finish tr- the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So, what's going to be accomplished during and by the end of this 490-year period is the penalty for Israel's transgressions and sin and iniquity. It will be fulfilled. It will be completed. Remember, why is Israel in exile in Babylon and in Persia in the first place? It's a form of discipline, a form of judgment for their sin, for their breaking trust with God. So at the end of the exile, it will be uh, the discipline is over. 
The judgment is absolved. So uh, that, will be, that will take place and the prophecy will be fulfilled. Prophecies will be fulfilled and the temple apparently will be rebuilt, it says. So there's this immediate fulfillment for Israel, that they're going to turn to the land, uh, that they are going to uh, have prophecy fulfilled that they know, and that the temple will be rebuilt. But the phrases here, okay, in, in Hebrew, in, in these lines in verse 24, they are really, really hard to translate. In fact, when you get into it, what you see is that it could really go one way or another. It's almost like they're purposely written in a very loose way so that it can have this immediate fulfillment for Israel at this time, but also it sort of suggests and infers a future greater interpretation of these very phrases. So there's this tension as you read this in the original language, and it makes you think, wait, is this talking about Israel? Or is this talking about something more, something else, something beyond? So for example, those first three phrases, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, it could mean fulfill, like I just said, that God brings their discipline, this time of judgment to its end, deals with their sin, but it also could mean cease, as in sin, iniquity, and transgression are done away with removed, eliminated from existence, obliterated. It could also mean that. Further, it seems like these words suggest something new and permanent and future is going to take place. It says that, that at the end of this 490 period, there's going to be ushered in everlasting righteousness. That's new. That's a new reality. It says also fulfillment of vision and profit. That's Previous to Daniel, yes, Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, but that also now includes Daniel's prophecy, Daniel's vision. What Daniel has written is going to be fulfilled over the course of these 490 years. And also, it says, lastly, to anoint a most holy place. Now, here's what's interesting. In the original language, that word place, anoint a most holy place, is not there. Literally, it reads, to anoint a most holy And so many commentators just insert place because it was just talking about the temple up above it. But also it could just as easily and naturally be translated as to anoint a most holy one or even to anoint a most holy people. It could go either way. And so there's this tension even in these introductory phrases that show us that there is an immediate fulfillment to this, an immediate realization of this, but something probably definitely so much more. So all in all, Here's what I mean by all of this so far. This 490 year, years will include the end of exile for Daniel and Israel, but it suggests a greater end of exile sometime in the future, which extends beyond lands and beyond buildings and beyond Daniel and beyond Israel, but to a new era where sin is done away with and righteousness is permanent, and a new anointed people and a new anointed individual arrives. So that's what we see here, okay? 490-year period, it's going to end in exile for them, but also for future people. So now we're going to head into verse 25 here, and I'm actually going to read from a different translation than I normally do. I think ESV, which I usually preach from, doesn't exactly translate this in the most helpful way. I think the uh, New American Standard Bible translates it better. So that's what I'm going to read from. It'll be behind me. Go ahead and check it out with me. It says this. So you are to know and discern 
that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks, 49 years, and then 62 weeks, 434 years. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So this first 49-year period, it says that that will cover the, the issue of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem, and then its actual realization of it, the actual building of Jerusalem. So Cyrus, the king of Persia, at a certain point, he issues this decree for all exiles to return to the land and build the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, here's why I don't think these numbers are literal. Because I've read many commentaries, and there is not much agreement at all when the countdown begins. You know, from when the first second that issue decrees to when the 49 years ends, there's no unanimous agreement about like when that is. That's because I don't think this number is meant to be exact. This number is not meant to be literal. It's meant to be approximate. It will be approximately 49 years, but this number has a greater, richer, uh, more wonderful meaning than just literally 49 years. It actually has a more fascinating meaning. Look at Leviticus 25, 8 through 12. I want to invite you to look at this with me. This is how we should interpret these, these weeks, these years, these numbers. It says this in Leviticus 25. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the tr- loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. Sound familiar so far? Repetition of the same exact words, same exact numbers here, 49 years. And it continues and says, On the day of atonement, the 10th day of that seventh month, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee year for you, when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. So this 49th year, according to Leviticus, how we should understand that number is it's a reference to the year of Jubilee, when all debts are cleared, when all slaves are restored to their homes, when all property is returned to the original clans. It's the ultimate reset in every person's lifetime. That's what the year of Jubilee is, and it happens the 49th year, the 10th day of the seventh month of the 49th year that makes way for this Jubilee, this ultimate reset, this redemption, if you will. So when we come to Daniel, it seems like God is using a number that's associated with restoration and renewal to describe their return from exile. They will go back to the land and it will be like a jubilee, an ultimate reset, a national reset. He's saying that a jubilee year is about to occur in this word from Cyrus to go and return to the land and rebuild this temple. So jubilee, That's what this number 49 is ultimately trying to communicate to us, that they're going to experience a jubilee. Now, with that in mind, okay, that 49 would be an allusion or a reference to jubilee. Think about 490, that that, that number 490 that we started with. That is a tenfold jubilee. That's 49 years times 10, which means this. At the end of 490 years, there's going to be a jubilee of jubilees. 
the greatest jubilee that we've ever heard of, that, we've ever, that we could never even conceive of. So they're going to experience in 49 years a jubilee, but at the end of 490 years, it's going to be the jubilee of jubilees, the ultimate jubilee. So that covers, 49 years covers, the word from Cyrus to go and build the temple, and then when it actually gets built. Not an exact number, an approximate number that shows them and reveals to them this idea of restoration and renewal. But we're also told, okay, that from the rebuilding of Jerusalem, when that takes place, until Messiah the Prince comes, or an anointed one, a prince, if you're in the ESV, it says there will be 62 weeks, or 62 times 7, which of course is 434 years. And again, debates uh, abound about when this begins and when this ends. Is this when Jesus enters Jerusalem? Is this when Jesus begins his ministry? There's a lot of debates about, is this number literal? And I don't think it is. The original readers would not miss what this 434 number is a reference to. Look at Exodus 12. It says this. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So listen, if numbers are not meant to be exact meant to be approximate, meant to be general, sort of loose, then I think what the original readers would realize is this 434-year period that we're going to have to wait till the Messiah comes is going to be similar to, it's like compared to their time in Egypt until they were released from slavery through an exodus. So what we have here again, another iteration of a time of exile that awaits a new exodus. So just to prove to you, okay, that this number, 434, is this number 430, and there's touching points between them, and it's not meant to be taken literally, is we see this number actually appear elsewhere in Scripture in a symbolic way. In Ezekiel chapter 4, look, it says this. God says this to Ezekiel. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city that is Jerusalem. And put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mount against it. Set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you, take an iron griddle, and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be a stage, a state of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side, and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. So what do we see here in Ezekiel? That Ezekiel is called to be like this physical parable for Israel and Judah. He lies on his left side for, for, for 390 days, lies on his right, nice for four, right side for 40 days to show them that they're going to be in punishment for 430 years. But we know historically 
that that doesn't actually take place 430 years, what, what's, what, what's being referenced here. What God is trying to do through Israel is show them that you are going to endure another type of exile, just like you did for those 430 years in Egypt. One commentator says this, just to clear things up if you're not understanding. If I, you know, here's what he says in Ezekiel 4. At the Lord's instruction, Ezekiel made a model of Jerusalem to which he lays siege. Placing an iron wall between himself and the city, the Lord commands Ezekiel to lie on his side for 390 days for Israel and 40 days for Judah, each corresponding to a year of punishment. The point, he says, does not seem to be that Israel and Judah will be punished for these literal amounts of time, and historically they were not. Rather, the point seems to be that the exile from the land corresponds to the sojourn in Egypt, the exodus from Egypt pointing forward to the new exodus that will open the way to the return from exile. So why the numbers if they are not literal, he asks. The 390 days for Israel and the 40 days for Judah add up to 430 years, a number that recalls what Exodus tells us, which is that the people of God were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. So 434 It's meant to recall those 430 years in Egypt that preceded the Exodus. And this number has been used elsewhere in a symbolic manner to suggest judgment until restoration. So, the original readers, they would have understood that after the temple is rebuilt, they will undergo another time of exile, just like they did in Egypt. And that's why, verse 25, as we keep on reading at the end, it says, it will be built again, the the temple Jerusalem, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Meaning, during that time, even after, it's going to be hard. Israel, during that time, is without prophet, without vision. God does not speak to his people. It's like radio silence. There's uh, tons of war and strife and invasion. And so these next 434 years are going to be marked by distress, just like it says there in verse 25. But then at the close of those 430 years, there will be a new exodus. A new exodus will be performed just like God did the first time. So if you're tracking, 490 years There'll be a jubilee of jubilees, this ultimate exodus that's going to take place. But first, it's going to be 49 years that takes place, where there's going to be a smaller jubilee where you return to the land. But then after that, there's going to be a 434-year period to which we're going to recall your first time in slavery in Egypt. But that will also end in a new exodus. But what we find here is that even that exodus is not so simple. It's not so streamlined. A few things must take place for this new exodus to occur. And when Those things take place, it's almost as if ripple effects then occur after it. The kaleidoscope effect continues on. Look at chapter 9, verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So what this means is after these 430 years, the Messiah Prince, that anointed one who was talked about in the previous verse, he will be cut off and have nothing. What does that mean? What is that imagery trying to communicate? This is a shorthand, a suggestion, a hint of Jesus and what is going to happen to Jesus. And we know this imagery is of Jesus, of the Messiah, because Isaiah uses almost exact same imagery when he talks about this future suffering servant who's going to make atonement for the people and bring about a new redemption. Look at Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 9. 
and see how it connects to what we've read so far in Daniel chapter 9. It says this about the future Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace in his wounds, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, listen here, here it is, here's the big connection. Who considered that he, this Messiah, was cut off from the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich man in his death, he was left nothing. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So you see, there's mention of transgression and iniquity that's going to be dealt with by this future Messiah. But what is going to be necessary for those things to be dealt with? He will be cut off from the land of the living and he will be abandoned. He will be alone. This is what happens to Jesus. He's crucified, abandoned by his friends, buried in a tomb, all alone, left with nothing seemingly a failed Messiah. So there's this consistency across Daniel 9 and Isaiah 53, this same Messiah prince who will usher in what the 490 years anticipate will do so by being cut off and by being abandoned. Then it says, we continue reading. Here's what else it says. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, this line right here that I just read in the next verse, this is where we really begin to get into some controversial stuff. There's a lot of views and a lot of opinions about who is this and what does this mean. So there are some views who think this is talking about the Antichrist, that he is the prince and there's the people, the prince who shall come and destroy the city. Some people think it's this Roman general who leads the effort to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Some people think this is Antiochus Epiphanes. I think this is a reference to Jesus that he is the prince. Let me make my case. Let me persuade you why this is the case. The word prince here in verse, uh, in this verse is the same word that is used to describe the Messiah up in verse 25. So if we're allowing the Bible to give us its own definitions to work with, and we're operating within its own definitions, then it seems only natural and only logical that this, the people of the prince, who is this prince, it's that same prince up in verse 25. Also, the reason I think verse 27, uh, this is uh, talking about the Messiah, is because verse 27, I believe, is also talking about Jesus. He's the one who makes a strong covenant. Now, and we're going to get there to verse, uh, to verse 27, but in the original language in Hebrew, it says in our Bibles that he will make a strong covenant, but there is no word he. It just says strong covenant is made. And so in Hebrew, what, what happens is it attaches to the nearest person and, and, and fills the pronoun. It gives the, the identification with that, with that action. And so if verse 27 is about Jesus, who's making a strong and new covenant, then it has to be, this prince has to be the Messiah. Lastly, lastly, the pushback, okay, on, the, on this position that this is talking about Jesus is how can this be about Christ since it says that his people will destroy Jerusalem and the temple? Because we know that the Romans did that in 70 AD, not the people of the prince, not Israel. So how can this be? But I think it can be said 
that the people of the prince, Israel, are responsible for the destruction of the temple since Jesus teaches that the temple's destruction will be a sign of judgment against Israel for their rejection of him, as well as the definitive marker that the old covenant has come to its end and the new covenant is fully inaugurated. So look at Mark 13. Here's what it says about the temple. Here's what Jesus says about the temple. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus foresees a time when the temple and Jerusalem will be destroyed. Why, though? What's the reason for this temple's destruction? He tells us in Luke 23. And I'll go ahead and interpret this for you because I think it's a little tricky to interpret, but here's, here's what I think it means. It says this, but turning them to them, Jesus said, and this is Jesus as he's making his way to his cross, to the crucifixion, his last few moments. Uh, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, who's they? Who is they? the ones who are crucifying Jesus, the religious leaders of the day. For they do these things when the wood is green. What will happen when it is dry? Meaning, if unbelieving Israel kills Jesus when he's preaching truth and when he's holding them accountable and when he does what is right and righteous, how much worse will it be when there isn't someone there to speak the truth and to hold accountable and to bring about righteousness? In that case, it's going to be even more, the restraint will be lifted. It will be more violent, more destructive. And so if these things happen when Jesus is holding the line, what's going to happen when there is no line being held? And so this is what Jesus is saying is going to happen to the temple and Jerusalem because of unbelieving Israel. So it can be said that the people of the prince are the ones who are responsible for the destruction of the city and the temple. And so then what happens next? What happens next in the sequence of events? We keep on reading. It says, its end shall come with a flood. It will be swift. And that's exactly what we know historically happens to Jerusalem and the temple. It's a swift demolition. But then it says this, and to the end, there shall be war. And so it's as if the temple's demise in 70 AD now all of a sudden becomes this paradigmatic event that describes future realities that are going to be predictable and that are going to be certain. It's as if the temple's end foreshadows or anticipates another kind of end, and to the end it says there will be war. So it's like the end of the 430 years that ends in judgment, destruction, and the closing of an era makes way for a new era, but one that will be marked by difficulty. It's like the temple's destruction is prototypical for the future suffering of God's people. And then it stated, desolations, or a desolate one is decreed. So it's like this 430 years that ends the exile and introduces a new exodus, shifts us into a new timeline, if you will. Jesus' death ends one era, pronounces judgment, but then introduces a new era that will be marked by suffering, that will be marked by war, by a person who makes desolate. 
So this is right in line with what we've seen in our studies in Daniel so far. This little horn, the Antichrist, who is in every generation, past, present, and future, will oppose God and his people. And Daniel uses the phrase time, times, and half a time, or 1,250 days to describe that period of time that God's people are going to suffer. And that's what this is now describing. When Jesus dies, he ushers in a new era that is that time, times, and half a time, that 1,250 days that will be marked by persecution, marked by war, by a desolator who's going to be alive in every single generation. And that's what we see next in, nine, in chapter 927. It says this, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, okay, if we're allowing Scripture to define its own terms, this verse is best understood to refer to what Jesus' death is going to accomplish. He, by his death, inaugurates a strong covenant, a new covenant. That's what we read in Jeremiah chapter 31 in our time of congregational reading. And specifically, it says here what in Daniel, that he, he makes this strong covenant with who? The many. It says the many. And I, the reason I think this is Jesus the future Messiah, is because again that language is used of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. Let me read that for you. It says this, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So it's like we're supposed to see these touching points between here, Daniel chapter 9, this figure who's going to make strong covenant with the many, but it's going to be done how? By what method? By his death, burial, and resurrection for the many in Isaiah chapter 53. So, let's recap. Okay, an ultimate jubilee is prophesied of 490 years, and it will achieve the ending of transgressions and sins and iniquity and usher in permanent righteousness and fulfill Daniel's vision and anoint a people and a person. The first iteration of this will occur in a 49-year period that covers the decree from Cyrus to the residing in and building of Jerusalem, which is understood as a jubilee event. Then the next iteration is those 434-year period, which corresponds to the 430 years that Israel was in Egypt. This describes the time of the close of the Old Testament up until the ministry of Jesus. And just as the exile in Egypt was, Egypt was concluded by Exodus, so will these 430 years. So it seems like that Exodus is inaugurated by the death of Jesus and confirmed by the destruction of the temple, which becomes this paradigmatic picture that describes the suffering of God's people underneath the desolator, who is the Antichrist in every generation all throughout the church age. So for keeping track, We've covered 483 of the 490 years. We are waiting to see what God tells us now about those final seven years, the last week, the last seven. And so what does he say about the last week? 
That's where we're at here in this verse, verse 27. He says, for half the week, the final week of Daniel, the final week of the 490 years, uh, for half the week, he, the one who makes strong covenant, shall put an end to sacrifice. So if you look back at verse 26, it says, after, after the 62 weeks, those 430 years, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, meaning Jesus is killed. So what we know, all we know so far, is that after that period of time, after those 430 years, Jesus dies. But now here in verse 27, we find out that after that 434-year period, immediately starts the 70th week, the last and final week of Daniel, because it says here that the death of Jesus takes place during this last and final week. Again, it says, just to review, for half of the week, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So I think this is a reference generically to Jesus' earthly ministry. In his earthly ministry, and certainly in his death and resurrection, he abolishes sacrifice and offering. He renders obsolete the whole sacrificial system in the temple. It's no longer needed now that Jesus has brought about a new covenant. So then... The first half, here's what this means. The first half of this week is already come and gone. It it happened in Jesus' earthly ministry, the last three and a half years of his life. It's come and gone. So what does that mean for us? That means we all right now are living in the last half of the final week of these 490 years. That's where we are at in the timeline of human history. We are in the last final week And we await what? The great jubilee. The jubilee of all jubilees. So I hope it makes sense. (laughs) I hope I have made my case. But why does this matter? Why does this matter at all? Why should this touch our lives and make a difference? I just hope that you see how genius God is. What he likes to do, it seems, is, to, is take real historical events, real historical realities like the Jubilee and like the exodus from Egypt and the exile in Egypt, real events like that that are in time and space, that are embedded in time and space, and he uses them to teach us about future greater realities. I mean, God knows what he's doing. Like, he's writing scripture in the unfolding revelation of his purposes and who he is, and there is no cracks. There is no inconsistency. It all adds up. It all corresponds. It all makes sense. I was telling the guys this last week as we were reading through the Bible, like, I've read parts of other religious texts. There is nothing that comes close to the genius, wholeness, intelligence and coherence of God's word. It just reads different. But as you read it, what I hope you see is this is who our God is. He literally holds time and seconds and events in his hands so much so that he then uses them for his grandiose purposes that are way beyond us. So listen, If it all makes sense and it all adds up and it's all coherent and God is totally consistent, stop freaking out about your life. You don't need to be in control. And in fact, 
I promise you, you and I are not essential to our life working out. (laughs) Because God is, and God can, and God does. And so not only is God authoring all of human history, but he's offering it with authoring it with genius and he's presiding over it with total power and total sovereignty past present future he presides so we don't need to freak out he he knows it all adds up he has a plan and he proves it what else what else does this mean why else is this important We're in the 70th week of Daniel. We're in that last and final week. We're approaching the time of a great jubilee that is to come, which means we have hope that we will be delivered from our exile, that this sojourning, this time of distress, it will come to an end. We have all the hope in the world more than anyone else. Here's what this means, though. It will be distressing. It will be hard. We will face opposition and we will suffer But we, of all people, have the hope, the greatest hope in the world. And so, what this means for our lives is this. We're going to have times of ecstatic joy. We're going to have times where where life is just beautiful and wonderful, and we're filled with hope. And there's going to be times where it's going to be dark, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be disappointing. Don't be surprised. Live in that tension and embrace that tension that we will be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's, that should not be surprising to us. This is what it's like to be in exile. We are not at home. We are not comfortable here. It is hard, but we have all the hope in the world. Lastly, lastly, why this matters. Jesus, the anointed one, the prince, he has made strong covenant with us. He has pledged himself to you and I and accomplished what Daniel prayed for, deliverance. He has brought about the end of iniquity and transgression and sin. Is this your hope? Is this your hope? Do you, have you brought into the center of your life that Jesus has made strong covenant with you? That he is with you to the end of the age and no matter what happens here and now, no matter what is to come ahead of us, no matter what desolations we face, he is always in our corner and pledged himself to our hearts. Is this your hope? Is that your hope? Are you building your life, your identity, your security on this, that Jesus is yours and you are his? So I hope you're persuaded. I hope you're persuaded that there is not a better hope than this, that it's verified, it's without cracks and without weakness. And what I hope is that this message and these realities propel us forward to be faithful exiles for God in our time of waiting until we experience finally our great jubilee. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, even the the hard parts of your word, because they stretch us, Lord, and they call us to love you not just with our heart, but with our mind.
We want to love you with our entire being. And so God, I pray that you have captured our imaginations. I pray, God, that you have persuaded us that there is no greater hope other than you. I pray, God, that we would be faithful exiles unto you. And God, we thank you above all things for Jesus who experienced the exile we deserved, who was forsaken, who was abandoned, who was cut off so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be pledged a new strong covenant. We thank you for Jesus and all he has done for us. Help us to hold fast to him. In your name we pray, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.